John four nineteen through 30. Hear the word of the Lord. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one asked, What do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Lord, we do, we do ask for that very thing, that you would renew our hearts and minds under the teaching of your word this morning. Your word is a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. Lord, and how do any of us, young or old, keep our way pure? Is it not by keeping it according to your word? So your word, Lord, we have, we have striven to hide your word in our hearts so that we might not sin against you. Lord, and it's through your word that we're sanctified in truth. It's through faith in the word and conviction of the spirit that we come to salvation in Christ. And by your spirit, we're given uh, power and conviction concerning the message of the gospel we've heard, Lord, so that we as your loved ones know your love, even as we just sang. And, uh, Father, I thank you for the glorious reality of salvation and that as so many of us in this room can testify, it's not a mere theoretical speculation. It's not a, an empty hope that someday we just, we hope that when we pass on, we will be found in your presence and acceptable in your sight. Lord, in the gospel, we're sure we have a, a confident hope. We have a sense of conviction that Christ truly is all that we need to be in right fellowship with you. And Lord, we thank you for all the work you've done in the gospel to save us. We pray this morning you would continue that work and continue to shape us and sanctify us for the glory of your name. Help us be those who truly worship you, Lord, in every circumstance. Lord, many of us in this room are joyful. We're in a, a season of life where so many good things are happening, so many blessings seem to be poured out upon us in abundance from your hand, and we, we revel in the way that you are uh, amazingly ordering our steps before us. And there are others of us who are uh, even shocked and uh, feel taken back by 
the situations and circumstances of our lives. And we find it hard to have the joy that your word calls us to have. Father, I pray that you would come and meet with all of us on either side of that spectrum and anywhere in between. God, let us, let us be those who worship you in spirit and in truth this morning. And may the power of our God through the Holy Spirit in the name of Christ be poured into our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, so that no matter what we're going through, the living hope and the power by which we walk is that declaration that we can do anything through Christ who strengthens us. Father, we love you. We pray you'd be with us today. Make your presence known in a very special way. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, we are picking up where we left off uh, last week in John chapter 4, where Jesus is giving to us uh, some of the most profound teaching on the nature of true worship that's found anywhere in Scripture. What Jesus has to say to us here in John chapter 4, specifically verses 21 through 26, even 24, um, is the clearest and, and, as I said, the most profound teaching on the nature of true worship that we have in the Bible. Now, as we saw last week, Jesus makes clear to this woman of Samaria, this immoral woman, this broken woman, uh, that true worship is not about external forms and rituals. It's not about going through the motions and Worshiping God on this mountain or that mountain and this place or that place or with this ritual or that ritual. True worship is about internal realities. It's about having a heart and a mind that are rightly aligned with God. right? So that your mind is thinking properly about God. You're thinking about God according to the truth about God and your heart is responding to that truth about God in sincere faith and true worship. It's about internal realities. As I just mentioned here, Jesus describes that true worship in two ways. One, as we saw last week, true worshipers are those who worship the Father in truth. And Jesus says it very strongly in verse 24 that the Father must be worshipped in truth. That is, it's necessary to worship the Father in truth. You remember what the woman asked him uh, we, our fathers worship on this mountain, but you people say it's necessary. We must worship in Jerusalem. Well, here Jesus is telling her what is actually necessary. It's not necessary that you worship God on this mountain or that mountain because the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers must worship the Father in spirit and in truth, right? So he describes true worship as those who, true worshipers as those who worship in Truth, that is the truth of God, must govern and shape our understanding of what it means to worship God. Right theology produces right doxology. Right doctrine produces right worship. Right thinking about God produces right worship of God. And so we're either worshiping God according to the truth about who he is. We are worshiping him in truth by worshiping him according to truth. 
or we are worshiping and serving an idol, even if that idol bears the name Jesus. Now, the implication that flows from this, where we ended last week, was that in our worship, we must be worshiping with fully engaged minds. We must have minds that are mature in our thinking about God. As Romans 12, 2 makes so clear, how, how is it that we as believers are transformed so that we can approve of the things that are in fact God's will? It's through the renewing of our mind, right? And so we must worship God according to the truth, and in order to worship God in truth, we must worship God with renewed minds, fully engaged minds that are thinking deeply about God. Now that's, that's countercultural. Uh, even within the culture of Christianity in the church. But we, we need to be different. We need to be living up to the standard of God's word. Now, with that in mind, no pun intended, with that in mind, would that be a pun? The, the mind is not all that is involved in offering God true worship. Secondly, Jesus tells us in John 4.23 that we must not only worship the Father in truth, but we also must worship the Father in spirit. True worshipers are those who worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, what we want to look at today is really just answering the question, what does it mean to worship the Father in spirit? When Jesus says, you true worshipers worship the Father in spirit, what does that actually look like? What does that mean? Well, just like we mentioned last week, uh, worshiping God in truth could have two possible meanings. Right? It could be worshiping God in sincerity, or it could be worshiping God according to the truth. Well, in that same way, worshiping God in spirit could have two possible meanings. And taking in the whole counsel of Scripture, doctrinally, either one of these meanings could be right. Okay? So, what does it mean to worship God in spirit. Some say, first of all, that worshiping God in spirit means worshiping God in and through the Holy Spirit. So it is worship that takes place in and through the Holy Spirit or by means of the Spirit of God. Now there's some weight to that argument. You may remember in the, the connection, this connection in the context of, of John 4. Where in John chapter 4, verse 10, Jesus says that he's going to give this woman living water. Well, by the time we get to John chapter uh, uh, 7, verses 38 through 39, how, how is that living water defined? It's defined as the Holy Spirit. right? Where Jesus says, I'm gonna, you uh, you'll have living water coming forth from your innermost being. And then verse 38, 39 says, this he spoke of the Spirit. So living water, Holy Spirit, there's the connection there. And so because of that, some people say that worshiping in spirit means worshiping God according to the worship that comes as a result of living in fellowship with the Spirit and submitting to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now that's not far-fetched, especially in light of the fact that the rest of the Bible makes clear that every aspect of our worship flows directly out of a living fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? You cannot worship God at all in any way unless that worship is flowing out of a fellowship with the Holy Spirit. For example, in Philippians 3.3, 3, 
Paul writes and says, we, we are not the false circumcision. You know who that's referring to? The Jews. We are not the false covenant people of God. But we are the true circumcision. We are the real covenant people of God. Those who worship in the Spirit. Right? So it's definitional of being a covenant member of God's family. What's definitional to that is worshiping in the Spirit of God. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 through 17 really emphasize this a little more. Where Paul's praying for believers that by the Holy Spirit, God would pour His power out into our innermost being so that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. In other words, you cannot believe in Jesus unless the Spirit of God is pouring the power of God into your soul. You can't believe in Jesus initially. You can't continue believing in Jesus at all for the rest of your life apart from the power of God being ministered to your heart through the Holy Spirit. And I want you to understand something. When Paul's praying for that, he's not talking about some theoretical element of what it means to walk in fellowship with the Spirit. He's talking about knowing the power of God in your heart. It's amazing. Amazing statement. Jude chapter, or chapter, Jude 20. Jude verse 20 and 21. We are called as believers to keep ourselves in the love of God and to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. How are we going to do that? By praying in the Holy Spirit. It's praying in the Spirit of God that enables us to build ourselves up in the faith and keep ourselves in God's love. Talk about what that means some other time. Keeping yourself in the love of God. Now what does that practically look like though? Here's that fly again. We bought my mother-in-law one of those salt guns. You guys... Guys have one. Yeah, yeah. Those are so much fun. I think we need to invest in one and have it right here in the pulpit, right? <laughs> right next to my nine millimeter, we can put a salt gun. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No. Now, what does it practically look like to worship God in the Holy Spirit? Well, I think Galatians 5 really gives us uh, the most clear elements or aspect of what that means. Galatians 5, 16 through 17. What does it mean to worship God in fellowship with the Spirit? Well, practically speaking, it means walking according to the desires of the Spirit. You are living your life according to the holy, godly, righteous, power, powerful desires that the Spirit of God is birthing within your soul. Where you read God's word, you read about his righteousness, you read about his commands, you read about faith in Christ, you read about what it means to live a life that's, that's, that's honoring Jesus and fellowshipping with him, and the spirit begins to birth within you certain specific desires that will, that will live those things out. So whenever temptation rises up in your your presence and you're being confronted with a sin that you know you struggle with, somewhere in that temptation there is also alongside of it the desire being birthed in you by the Holy Spirit to resist that sin and to put it to death for the glory of Christ. So what does it mean to live in fellowship with the Spirit in light of that? Well, it means that you follow the desire that the Spirit's birthing in you and you resist that sin and you put it to death. 
You, you walk according to these desires of the Spirit, and you put to death the desires of the flesh. Or as Galatians 5.25 puts it, you keep in step with the Spirit. Or Ephesians 4.30, you live in a way that does not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That's, that's what it means to, to live in fellowship with the Spirit of God. It's, it's not a passive thing. It, it's a very active approach to walking in fellowship with God in your day-to-day moments. Right? Where you're, you're consciously paying attention and being aware to what the Spirit of God is working inside of your own heart through his word and by his power. So the New Testament makes abundantly clear that all true worship flows out of this living, vibrant, real relationship with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I just had to put this in here. The Spirit of God, in other words, is not some dumb, impersonal force like what Jehovah Witnesses say. He's not just power like electricity that you can kind of tap into and use according to your desire. Right? That's the way a lot of charismatics will treat the Holy Spirit. Just, just some kind of power that's to be used. Right? That's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in himself holy, almighty God. He is the living, life-giving God who graciously condescends to dwell within us and to have communion and fellowship with us in the name of Jesus and for the glory of our Father. We cannot underestimate the importance and the necessity of living a life that is in harmony with the Holy Spirit and learning what it means to cultivate a life of deep communion with Him. That's really the the essence of the entire Christian life. You are seeking to cultivate deeper and deeper forms of fellowship or deeper and deeper experiences of fellowship with God through Christ by His Spirit. Now, in our day, there's a ton of confusion about what that means in there. Even as I'm saying fellowship in the Spirit, I guarantee if we took a poll, there would be at least ten different different things about what we think that means in this room. The charismatic movement and, and much of what is named Christianity has created so much confusion and so much chaos when it comes to studying and understanding the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and what it means for Him to work and move and and be in fellowship with us in our lives. I think in light of that, we as believers need to start learning how to cultivate this kind of deep and real communion with God. Where are you going to start? You ever ever felt confusion about what does it mean to have fellowship with the Holy Spirit? Right? Isn't that what Paul prays? uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 12? Or is it 14? The love of of God and the the grace of Christ and and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You ever struggle to understand what that means? How are you going to find out what that means? That's a real thing. Well, first of all, you you start by taking up the scriptures and going page for page through God's word, looking for references to the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. That's where it starts. 
You don't start by going and finding a book on the Holy Spirit and reading some guy's thoughts about what it means to walk in the Holy Spirit. You start by going to God's Word. You start mining His pages. You, you plead for God to open, open your mind and to give you understanding and insight to, to illumine the eyes of your heart so that you begin to see exactly what it means to walk in fellowship with the Spirit of God. And that's where I found clarity. Not by reading this book and that book and, and A.W. Tozer and, and even John Owen on on that, I, I found clarity in understanding what it meant to walk in communion with the Spirit by reading God's Word. So that's where you start. But where do you go from there? I think at that point, there is also room and space to go to what other godly men of the past have discovered as they have struggled to cultivate and understand what it means to live a life of communion with God through the Spirit. Now, I brought some my favorite two examples here. It's really just one. You guys know who that is? John Owen. Yeah. Something like John Owen anyway. Right? I'm not exactly sure that that's what he looked like. There were no photographs back then. But this is Owen's second volume of 16 volumes that I have. And this is a book that is entirely devoted towards communion with God. It's communion with God the Father in part one, communion with God the Son in part two, and communion with God the Spirit in part three. You got 52 densely packed pages explaining from Scripture what it means to have communion with the Holy Spirit and how to cultivate it as a believer. I cannot, I cannot recommend this highly enough to you. You need to read Owen on the Holy Spirit. And if you don't want to go to his original writings, then take up the abridged and made easy to read version. Communion with God, the Puritan paperback version. You can read this. You can. Stop. Uh, and let me, for that matter, you can read this. You really can. You are not stupid. Like I said last week, God gave you a mind. And the reason why that mind doesn't work as sharply as it ought to is because you don't use it the way you should. Right? Same with me. I'm not just pointing fingers at you. The same with me. We need to use our brains. These are excellent helps to help us understand what it means to walk in fellowship with the Spirit of God. So the encouragement is take up and read, right? It's the same from last week. Don't be afraid to do this. Don't be intimidated by this. Take it up and read and study. So according to Scripture, a life of worship is a life of walking in conscious fellowship with the Holy Spirit. But here's the question, is that what Jesus is talking about in John 4 when he's talking about worshiping God in spirit? Well, some other people say, contrary to that, that what Jesus means in John 4, 23 and 24 is that worshiping God in spirit is actually worshiping God with our spirits, right? With our souls, uh, worshiping God with the full engagement of our heart and soul and with all of our inner being. That's what Jesus means when he's calling us to worship God in spirit. I mean, that actually is the other side of that first and greatest commandment that we looked at last week, right? Remember last week we said, what's the first and greatest commandment? It's to love the Lord your God with all your mind, right? Well, there's another part of that. It's, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, right? Right? 
So what we would have here, what some argue, is that what, we, what Jesus gives us here in John 4, 23 and 24 is really the complete package of worship that God wants from us. You have the, the full engagement of all of our spiritual, all of our emotional, and all of our mental capacities. That they're all being, being, being honed in and they're being refined and, and, and combined to offer up this one life of worship unto our God. We're worshiping Him in spirit. We're worshiping Him in truth. Is that primarily what Jesus has in mind when He speaks here of worshiping God in spirit? What do you think? Hands up if you say yes. You have to vote or you're being church disciplined in our annual meeting after the service today. Is Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit? Raise your hand. Is Jesus talking about our spirits? Raise your hand. Okay. All right. We'll take another poll in a minute. How many of you don't know yet? Okay. All right. Some of you raise your hands on, on multiple of those, of those options. So, All right, so is Jesus talking about worshiping in our, with our spirit? I think so. And I mainly think that because of how Jesus uses the word spirit in relation to God in John 4.24. When Jesus says we must worship him in spirit and in truth, he immediately explains why in verse 24. For God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, is it true that the Holy Spirit is God? Amen. That's right. That's right, brother. It is true. The Holy Spirit is God. But when Jesus says God is spirit, who is he specifically referring to? The person of the Father, right? Because we're talking about worshiping the Father, right? That's the issue Jesus is addressing. And here Jesus calls the Father God, generically. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, in doing that, Jesus is not here saying that the Father is the Holy Spirit. So it's not saying God here, the Father, is Spirit, the Holy Spirit. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not conflating the persons of the Trinity. That's um, uh, modalism, right? That there's, there's one God, there's one person that is God, and he, he operates and functions in different ways at different times and, and with different people. So he's at times the Father, and at times he's the Spirit, and at times he's the Son. That's not a biblical view of the Trinity, there are three eternal persons who are one God, or I should say who is one God, if you will. One being, three persons. That's clear, right? You guys got that. So in, in saying God is spirit, Jesus is not saying that the Father is the Holy Spirit. No, what he's talking about is the quality of the Father's nature. That the Father is not a physical, material being. He, is not, he, is not, he doesn't have a corporal body, right? He doesn't have a material body. He is, by nature, pure spiritual being. And therefore, Jesus' application to this woman and Jesus' application to us is that if we would worship God rightly, 
then we must worship him with that part of us that corresponds to his spiritual nature. God is spirit, and we must worship him in spirit, right? That part of us, that faculty of our being that is congruent with his own, our spiritual nature, our inner being. That's what we see among the saints in Scripture all throughout the Bible, right? In Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 47, what does Mary, uh, the, the, the mother of Jesus, what does she say when she finds, when she's with um, Elizabeth, and Elizabeth praises the Lord for what's happening with Mary, and, and the Lord, her Savior, is being born through this. Mary exalts in the Lord, and she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. There's this inner worship that's happening in Mary's life that explodes forth with her, uh, through her lips in praise. That's that kind of worship I believe Jesus is talking about. Or David in Psalm 34 verse 2 where David says, My soul makes its boast in Yahweh. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Not just my mind, not just my lips, not just the outward facade of my life, but my very soul, the depth of my being is worshiping God. And it's out of that that he turns to the people and he says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. That's corporate worship. That's what we are supposed to be doing here in the mornings when we gather as a church. We're not just gathering here to receive what old blundering Pastor Seth has to say from the pulpit. If that's all you're here for, you, you, you've sold yourself short. If all you're here is to receive what other people have to give you, then you are not fully engaging in the worship of the church. David says, my soul makes his boast in the Lord. And oh, people of God, magnify the Lord with me. Bring your own praises with mine and let's combine them and lift up a holy offering of worship to our God. That's a worship service. You are an active participant in that, or, or you're sitting on the sideline in disobedience. It's like there's no, no in-between. That's exactly, this kind of worship is exactly what Romans 12, 11 commands believers to offer God in all of their lives. Paul writes there through the Holy Spirit that we are to be fervent in spirit as we serve the Lord. There's this fervency. There's this zeal that's manifesting as we go about living our lives in service to Yahweh. That's worship. God has always been seeking this kind of worship in his people, right? Second Chronicles 16.9, what does it say? For the eyes of Yahweh move to and fro throughout the whole earth that he may strongly support those whose hearts are wholly devoted to him. It's always been about the heart. It's always been about lifting up to God the very, from the very core of your being, worship in his name. That's what Jesus is primarily focused on whenever he's speaking to us about this, the, the real nature of worship. Worship is not about external forms. Worship is about internal realities that may manifest through external forms. They will. But it always starts internally with worship. The active engagement of our hearts, our spirits, 
in praise to God. Now that does not mean, as I just said, that does not mean our bodies will be uninvolved in offering true worship to God. When our spirits are engaged in worshiping God according to the truth, then our bodies will be the means of offering living expressions of worship to Him. Does that make, do you follow me there? When our spirits are engaged in worshiping God, then our bodies become the vehicles through which we lift up expressions of worship to God or manifest expressions of worship to God. Uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2, chapter or verse 1 especially, in light of the mercies of God, we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, acceptable to God. So there's this engagement with our physical frame. We are using our bodies to worship our God. Why? Because that is our spiritual service of worship. You see that? Your body is the means by which your spirit worships the Lord. It's, it's, the, it's the frame. We are, we are spirit-inhabited bodies. We, 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 we have a spiritual and a physical joined together in our nature, and both of them combine to enable us to live out our lives as image-bearers of God. So, so the, the soul is, is that which is most congruent with the nature of God, and the body is the means that God has given us to express that spiritual nature physically. Worship in the heart affects how we use our bodies. Which, by the way, is proof that this Samaritan woman was not living a life of fellowship with God, right? What was the fruit that was manifesting in her life? Her, her body was not being used to honor and glorify God. Her body was being used to glorify herself. Being used as an object for some man to glorify his own lust and perverted ambitions. No, like with this woman, this woman was, was very much guilty of the same thing that Isaiah rebuked the Jewish people for in Isaiah 29, 13. When he told them, you, you honor God with your lips, but your hearts are far from me, the Lord says through Isaiah. You know, God detests lip service. He hates it. That's hypocrisy. And how did Jesus treat hypocrites? With a level of righteous anger that didn't manifest with anyone else. There's nothing, there's nothing in lip service unto the Lord. Just, just, just thinking that you're giving him what's due to him by coming in here and sitting in a church pew. Or writing that check offering and putting it in the offering box in the back. Or, or even checking off the daily reading of your Bible, but not having the Word of God planted deep in your own soul and mind. God is not honored by you offering Him your external forms if there's no heart engaged in them. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do those things. External forms are important. But true worship is not the result of merely engaging externally. Your heart has to be engaged in that. And guess what? You can't make your heart engage in things that your heart doesn't want to do. This is, where, this is where the supernatural nature of the Christian life really is important to understand. You live in daily dependence upon the life of God being fed to you by Jesus Christ through His Spirit. 
John 15, we're going to get there. You are, you are nothing but a branch that is connected to a vine. And you're either abiding in that vine and soaking from that vine the life of the vine. Or you are disconnected from the vine and you're dead. That's the Christian life. You don't live any moment of the Christian life in dependence upon your own strength and ability to do it. To make it happen. That's Roman Catholicism. That's not biblical Christianity. That's Mormonism. That's living by works, doing the best you can, and after that, the grace of God will be good enough for you. That's heresy. No, the gospel is Jesus is our righteousness. He is our wisdom. He is our sanctification. He's all of our redemption. And by the grace of God, we have been enabled to see that. And we join together with him gladly and with a whole heart. God is not merely after our external forms and rituals and worship, nor, let me say this, nor is he merely after the implanting of truth in the mind. True worship doesn't reach its climax in its full intention until the truth that is in our minds by God's grace begins to flow outward and back to him through heartfelt worship. It must be both, or else it is not true worship. You know, Jonathan Edwards spoke about this in Religious Affections, and then also in, um, man, I think it's in A Divine and Supernatural Light, he mentioned something like this, and then also in a sermon that he's preached to some pastors or something, something like that. Go read his, his two-volume works from Banner, you'll find it. It's like a thousand pages each, you know, really tiny print, that big. So anyway, I'll get it, I'll get it to you sometime. Anyway, Jonathan Edwards spoke about this. He he talked about it in terms of light and heat, right? Where where knowledge of God and the truth is light, and heat is the actual fervency of the soul and worshiping God. So according to Jonathan Edwards, worship is not light, knowledge, without heat. Heart, zeal, fervency, that's what he's getting at. True worship is not light without heat, like so many Orthodox, Evangelical, and Reformed churches can be. I'll tell you, man, I, I loathe, I mourn over the fact that some of the most doctrinally sound churches in our lands are some of the most dead churches in our lands. You walk in there and you think, is anybody alive? Hello, has God raised anyone from the dead in this place? Because it doesn't sound like it in your singing. When the pastor prays, is anyone else praying? I don't think anyone else is engaged. Man, it's a sad, it, we should all mourn over that, but we should also be seeking to make sure that this place isn't like that. And you know where that starts? It doesn't just start with me. I understand that as the pulpit goes, so goes the church. I get that. But it starts with all of us taking ownership of the responsibilities God has given us. Being godly witnesses and, and living godly lives of worship on a moment-by-moment -moment basis in our day-to-day -day lives. And then joining together as a church body to bring all of those individual candles that are burning so brightly for the glory of the Lord throughout the week, bringing those candles together and uniting our flames for the glory of God and making it burn brighter together for God's glory. That's what we're after, right? That's worship with light and heat.
Right? So, so true worship cannot be light without heat. It can't just be knowledge without heart and zeal and fervency. Neither can it be heat without light. Because that's just empty emotionalism that goes from one emotional high to the next and has no substance in it. Many charismatic circles are guilty of that, right? Much of the music, Christian music that's coming out today is nothing but an attempt to create a bunch of heat, but it has very, very little light in it. Hey, and let me just throw something out there. Maybe it seems unrelated, but in my mind it's not. You need to be careful about the kind of worship music you're listening to. Bethel Church Reading, Jesus, was it Jesus Culture? Um, Hillsong, United, those, uh, anything coming out of IHOP in Kansas City, like you, need to, you need to be on guard against that nonsense because all that is is an emotional tactic to stir you up and make you feel something, but it's not real worship. It's not real worship. Real worship should be emotionally stirring. It should be rich in emotion, but it should also be rich in doctrine. It should be the doctrine that causes your heart to stir and flutter and get excited and exult in the Lord. The doctrine, right? Parentheses, close that. Worship must be full of light. It must be full of the white, hot light of God's truth, of the truth of God specifically revealed through our Lord Jesus Christ. It must be filled with the light of God's righteousness and the light of our own deserved condemnation before His judgment seat. It must be filled with the light of Christ's righteousness on our behalf and Christ's atoning sacrifice in our place, dying under the wrath of God for our good. It must must be filled with the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension on high into glory. It must be full of all of those truths as we come to worship God. Our minds must be thinking about those things with grateful adoration. But if those truths do nothing to our hearts, then we have not yet understood what those truths are saying. If you can't raise your hands... To worship the Lord with a, with, a, with a pure heart and thankfulness and joy for what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. Then you need to, if you are more concerned about what other people think of you when you raise your hands, than you are obeying the command of the Psalms to lift your hands and worship to Yahweh, then there's something wrong. You understand that? This is not a cultural thing. It's not about being a Minnesotan and I'm a Southerner. And that's where the difference comes from. No, it's about obeying the Bible. It's about seeing what God has to say in his word and worshiping him according to his desire. Doctrine is important. Doctrine is necessary. It's absolutely vital. But unless it culminates in true, zealous, heartfelt worship unto the Lord exalting in Christ, then it hasn't met its mark in your heart. The truth hasn't. You cannot be a true worshiper of God without the light of worship and the heat of worship coming together. So no matter how many songs we sing or how doctrinally accurate our sermons are 
or how much we read our Bibles or offer prayers or even how successful we are in resisting sin, if these things are not being offered as outward expressions of pure and sincere heart worship, then they are not acceptable forms of worship, acceptable expressions of worship. Now, even though it seems that Jesus is speaking of worshiping God with our own spirits here in John 4, I'm not sure that we should draw a sharp line of distinction between worshiping God with our spirits and worshiping God in the Holy Spirit. So let me take another poll. As we begin to come to a close, how many of you say that this is talking about worshiping God with the Holy Spirit now? After everything that's been said, you still think it's worshiping God in the Holy Spirit? Amen. Hold on. Don't jump ahead of me, brother. Yeah. How many of you think it's worshiping God in our spirits? He just gave the answer away, right? I did. How many say it's both? I think Jesus, to be accurate and responsible with the text, I think Jesus is specifically talking about worshiping God with our spirits. However, from the testimony of Scripture, it is impossible to worship God with our spirit if we do not have the ministry of the Holy Spirit at work within us. So it's not possible to have one without the other. Where where the Spirit of God is working, you will be worshiping God with your spirit. Where you are not worshiping God with your spirit, the Spirit of God is not working. So here's my third option. Rather than one and two, worshiping God with the Holy Spirit and worshiping God with our spirits, my option is let's combine them. Worshiping God means, thirdly, worshiping by the Holy Spirit with our spirits. You get this from Philippians 3.3, for example, where we find both of these things brought together. We are the true circumcision, Paul says, who worship in the Spirit of God and do what? And glory in Christ Jesus. We worship in the Spirit of God and we glory in Christ Jesus. Now here you have both sides of the coin brought together in one verse. You have the ministry of the Spirit and the means of the Holy Spirit working in our own lives by which we are worshiping God. And then you also have this tangible, real, zealous, emotional type of worship being offered to God through Christ that Paul calls glorying in Jesus. Where we're not just... You understand that? You see the distinction there? This, we are worshiping in the Spirit of God and we are glorying in Christ Jesus. Where the Spirit comes and illumines the eyes of our hearts and we see Jesus not as just some doctrine, not as just some truth, not as some man who lived 2,000 years ago, not as something that some people claim Him to be, you know, God or something worth worshiping. No, we see Jesus as glorious. The Spirit comes and awakens our hearts to see the glory of Jesus. And then our spirits respond by glorying in Jesus. So when the Holy Spirit awakens us to see Christ in his glory with the eyes of our hearts, then we, with our renewed spirits through regeneration, being born again, our souls respond to that illumination by glorying in Jesus. 
These are the kinds of worshipers that the Father is seeking. So what is the Father after in your life? Is he after what building you're going to worship him in? Is he after what mountain you're going to worship on? This church, that church? Well, maybe, depending on whether that church is preaching the truth or not. But what is God really after? He's not after what building you're going to worship him in. He's after you. He wants your heart. That's what he's after. And worship happens when we, with minds informed by the truth and souls inflamed by that truth through the Holy Spirit, worship happens when we pour our souls out to God in holy adoration and worship in response to the truth. That is when we are truly worshiping God, when the Spirit enables us to see with the eyes of our hearts and we glory in God and praise and adore and exalt in Him. Now, as we close, as we come to the table, I think it's really important to offer a qualification here or at least a correction to what can very often be a misunderstanding. Worship is joyful. Worship is wonderful. Worship is satisfying. Worship, worship, when you're truly worshiping God, it's like the temptations of sin utterly disappear. You know, it's uh, just, a, what is it? Uh, what's that song, Bill? Um, um, Jesus, keep me near the cross. No, no, it's not that one. Yeah. Now, anyway, I can't remember it. There's a blunder. But it's, it's about being near to Jesus. When you are near, temptations lose their power. Can't remember that hymn. What's that? When thou art nigh, I need thee, oh, I need thee. Yes, right. Every hour I need Thank you. There's something glorious about, about having a, a real deep joy in worshiping God. But I want you to understand, as important as it is to have joy in the Lord, there are also times when our expression of worship is going to come through an experience of brokenhearted, soul-crushing, low times. So very often we worship God with high times where our emotions are lifted up to the Lord and we feel like we're standing on Mount Everest in praise of Christ. Where we can almost touch the glories of heaven and we can hear the voices of the saints singing loud the praises of Yahweh. There are other times when true worship is offered by us in the deep, deep pit and valley of despair. I think it's important for us to recognize that both of those expressions of worship are what God wants. Or times of worship. In every circumstance and situations in our lives, we are called to worship God. And I might argue that especially in, the, in light of the fact that we live in a fallen, broken world full of pain and sorrows, that worship is going to come out from a broken-hearted state. We're called to worship God in every circumstance with truth-saturated minds and fully engaged hearts. And that does not always look like walking around with a dumb smile on your face. Though that can be how worship manifests.
Sometimes worshiping God looks like crying out to him with a heart that is filled with brokenness and sorrow. Sometimes worship looks like the sacrifice of lifting up to God a heart of worship in the midst of deep pain and sorrow and loss, where you with Job are not feeling very much joy, but you are lifting your hands to the God who has given and who is now taking away, and you are feeling in yourself by the Spirit of God an ability to bless His name. You're not smiling when that happens. You're not. You're weeping. You're crying. You're broken. But you're worshiping. Sometimes true worship means turning to God with tears being shed over the difficulty of raising children. Sometimes worship happens when you're changing a diaper and, or, or you're up all night long with a, with a screaming child and you can't get this child to be quiet. In those moments, worship looks like tears streaming down the face and begging God to give you strength to be the mother or the father that He calls you to be. Sometimes it means worshiping God out of heartache and the feeling of loneliness. When you're not married, you want a spouse. When you need friends around you, but no one seems to be there. When your family has deserted you and you're sitting there alone. Sometimes worship in that moment. God God wants you to worship in that moment. You know that. He wants you to bring that loneliness to the surface and deal with it in his presence and say, Lord, I'm so lonely. I need you to be near to me. Sometimes worship looks like giving God a heart that is mourning over sin after you've stumbled and fallen for the umpteenth time. Psalm 51 deep tears of contrition and remorse and godly sorrow. And at times, beloved, true worship even looks like lifting up our hearts to God when we are struggling with doubts. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief in this moment. I do believe in you. I know you are king. I know Jesus reigns. But I'm struggling with these doubts right now, Lord. Please, please cleanse me. Make me whole. Bring unity to my heart and mind and help me worship and know you in truth right now. The Spirit of God sanctifies us. The Spirit of God comforts us and aids us so that we can worship God in any and every circumstance that the Lord and His sovereign wisdom brings upon us. And the Spirit of God helps us offer to the Lord a heart of worship that is, that is uh, infiltrated and, and filled with right doctrine, and yet still has that richness of heart. So it's not where we worship in conclusion. It's not where we worship. It's who we worship. And it's how we worship him. As we close, I ask a question. If, if we were to hold up this as the standard of true and acceptable worship for us here at Oak Ridge Community Church. If we held this up as the standards that define the true worshiper. How does our worship measure up? Are we the true worshipers that Jesus is describing in these verses? 
If you're like me, you can find evidence that says yes, and you can find evidence that says no, I'm not. The good news, beloved, is that we're being sanctified. We're not going to be perfect in this worship until we get to glory. But is there evidence of real spiritual work happening in your heart right now? When you worship the Lord, it's not perfect. But is there genuineness there? Is there a mind governed by the truth and a heart that exalts in him? Then your worship is acceptable through Christ Jesus our Lord. And you need to rejoice in that. This is what defines true worship in the new covenant. And what distinguishes between those who are and those who are not true worshipers. May the Lord make us true worshipers. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the word. Thank you for the instruction that you give us. Thank you for your spirit that fills us and enables us to praise you. God, we don't praise you the way we ought. We don't love you the way we ought or even the way that we want to. But we do pray that you would work in us that miraculous that miraculous work that turns us into true sons and daughters who worship the King. God, we pray that you would work this in us more deeply than you already have. In Jesus' name, amen.